It's Friday, January 27th, and when there's this much prep for posting a police video, you know it's bad. We start here. After a death at the hands of police, five Memphis officers are charged with murder. They could not understand how a simple traffic stop could have led to these kind of injuries. Now a city prepares for a devastating video to be shared. Most gay men haven't been allowed to give blood for decades. There is still this lingering stigma that says gay men are are dirty. Could a momentous rule change encourage them to do so with pride? And voters mark the ballots, but who decides who gets on the ballot? Republicans have been looking for a head to roll since their poor performance in November. We'll tee up a contentious election that could seal Republican fates. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. someone is killed by police, there's a big difference between reading it and seeing it on video. In city after city, video has made the difference between an article and a protest or between a protest and a riot. Well, earlier this month in Memphis, Tennessee, a young black man was pulled over for what on paper seems like a routine traffic stop. But this stop ended with him bruised, bloodied, hospitalized, and a few days later, dead. I don't have any feelings right now. I don't even know how to, I don't know anything right now. All I know is my son Tyree is not here with me anymore. Last week, five of the officers involved were fired, and yesterday, they were charged with murder. While each of the five individuals played a different role in the incident in question, the actions of all of them resulted in the death of Tyree Nichols, and they are all responsible. We don't know a ton more than that because we have still not seen video of this arrest, but video does exist. And according to the people who have seen it, this video is so graphic, so disturbing, the police have been extremely deliberate about releasing it. We know now they plan on making it public tonight after the evening newscasts have wrapped in Memphis. They basically have had to apologize for what people are about to see. I expect you to feel what the Nichols family feels. I expect you to feel outrage in the disregard of basic human rights. Setting the stage for what many expect to be a night of heartbreak and anger. Again, some people have seen this video, and ABC's Steve Osinsami has talked with them extensively. He joins us now. Steve, for someone who doesn't know all the ins and outs of this Memphis case, can you just describe how this all came to light? So the initial incident took place on January 7th. It was a traffic stop In Memphis, this 29-year-old, Tyree Nichols, was in the car. He was pulled over, according to police, for what they are saying was reckless driving. And police then say there was a confrontation. He ran from the scene, which his family doesn't deny, and that there was another confrontation as the police tried to apprehend him. And for that to happen two blocks away from home, he was scared. I don't care what they say, he ran because he was scared. He was trying to get to my mama. And then the next thing we know is uh, the public sees a picture that his stepfather took from the hospital shortly before he died, where you see his face battered and swollen, and he's got all these tubes coming out of him. And then, of course, he dies in the hospital from his injuries. The family, of course, had been demanding since that happened for this video to be released. We're calling on the chief of police here in Memphis to give this family transparency. 
because in their minds, they could not understand how a simple traffic stop could have led to these kind of injuries. Say no more! Release the video! Say no more! The police, the district attorney, the federal government is launching an investigation into this. And the tone of this changed a bit with the relationship between the family and police. Tyree Nichols' family and attorneys are expected to meet with MPD to view the relevant video footage of his arrest. We met several times this week with the family of Tyree Nichols. They described an almost perfect son, a cheerful and happy person who enjoyed skateboarding. A week ago, the, the, the five police officers were fired. That is when we were first presented the identity of these officers. And to the surprise of a number of people, all five of the officers who were fired are African-American. You spoke to the family and their lawyer, right? What, I mean, what, what do they tell you? The, the family is heartbroken. We spoke with uh, Tyree Nichols's mother and his stepfather and their lawyer, uh, Ben Crump. Once the video started and I heard my son's voice, I lost it. I couldn't stay in the room because all I heard him say was, what did I do? We've heard it described that he was attacked like he was a human pinata. Mm. They say he was pepper sprayed. He was, uh, they used a stun gun on him in the video, according to the family. The doctor had told me that my son had went into cardiac arrest and that his kidneys were failing. And I said, all of this over a taser and, and pepper spray? They're devastated and they want justice. Hey, Steve, you mentioned all the charged officers here are black. Does that change the reaction that we might see to this video being shown to people? I mean, I immediately go back to like Rodney King and just to see this home video of him being wailed on by white police officers in a traffic stop that in many ways like bears a lot of resemblance to this. But I, I guess I'm just wondering, does that change perceptions of what went wrong here? So that is such a powerful question and one that's super appropriate to this case. I can tell you that it was being asked by black reporters like myself of the family and their lawyer that how does the race of the officers change the way this is seen? And there are conflicting opinions on this. We have to remind people that we are not anti-white cop. We are anti-bad cop. If you are to talk to Ben Crump, who's the lawyer for the family, he says that in his decades of working these cases that the most determinant factor in terms of whether excessive force is used by police officers is not the race of the officers, but the race of the victim. Oh, that that informs to police how somebody should be treated almost. Right. There's this sense that, you know, even if you're a black police officer, that you too can subscribe to the biases and the notions um, that other black people are more likely to be suspicious, more likely needing to be, you know, uh, handled a little more roughly, treated unfairly, etc. There's also this other point, which is that how the images are different, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about George Floyd for a second. It wasn't just that it was a police officer who was kneeling on the neck of a black man who was saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. It was the fact that that police officer was was white. It, it just caused a different reaction than had that same police officer been black. Um, now, the outrage would still be there, and there's going to be outrage here, no doubt. But I think you're, there are a lot of people who, 
who think that it's different. Now, I have described it this way, that the heartbreak is still there. It's just the heart breaks into different pieces because there is a conversation, I think, to be had about policing in America, about, you know, whether or not we afford the same amount of grace to a person in a situation dependent on color. Really interesting. And, and as you said, police clearly wanted to make sure that it was known that a lot of these officers were black before that video comes out because of the power of, of what I think a lot of the public is about to see here. Steve Os and Sami taking all this in. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Next up on Start Here, it's been decades of bad blood, but gay rights advocates say the blood itself's been fine for years. Potentially historic rule change after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All my life, giving blood has been the marker of being a good person. Like, that's what a good, decent human being does. You give blood so other people can live. Like many people, I've done it a few times, not regularly, and yet for virtually my entire life, when I do give blood, there's this line on the questionnaire asking if I'm a man who has sex with other men. And that's because since the mid-80s, there's been a rule against sexually active gay men donating blood, mainly for fear of HIV. That could be changing before our eyes. The Washington Post is reporting that the FDA has proposed a monumental rule change that would allow gay men to donate blood even if they are sexually active currently. ABC has not confirmed this, but this would be a big, big deal. So let's bring in Tony Morrison. He's the Senior Director of Communications for GLAAD, the LGBTQ advocacy group. He's also formerly of ABC, where he did award-winning work on this exact topic. So with that, Tony, I mean, what was your reaction to hearing this news? Brad, it's so great to join you. And like, listen, this is this is a big deal. This is 
big news for the community. And the major headline here from the from the Washington Post is that gay and bisexual men who are in monogamous relationships will no longer be asked to abstain from sex before donating blood under these proposed guidelines. This is the first time that certain gay and and bisexual men will be able to give blood without restrictions or donation deferrals since 1985. America faces a disease that is fatal in spreading, and this calls for urgency, not panic. This goes all the way back to the HIV AIDS crisis of 1980s, when HIV was was rampant and no one knew what it was. One major question raised is the safety of blood transfusions. The test for AIDS costs $160. Requiring it on all donors would make blood prohibitively expensive. Some have suggested not allowing gays to donate blood, but of course non-gays can have the disease also. Gay men were not able to give blood at all. As testing capacity increased, what we have seen the last few decades are these rules being relaxed and eased. The current regulation is that any gay or bisexual man or man who has sex with men who's sexually active and has had sex in the last three months is not eligible to donate blood. And what we're seeing here, the tail end, in just the last five years, we've gone from, you know, uh, requiring gay and bisexual men to abstain from sex for a year, then it became three months, and now we're easing restrictions for gay men with, like, subgroups of gay men. We're talking about monogamous relationships here. But I will call out, there aren't restrictions governing polyamorous relationships for straight couples, for example. So we're really looking for the FDA to, yes, relax these restrictions across the board and, again, apply to a gender-neutral donor base. But Tony, what, what would that look like? That, that You're saying that it should be based on if you have a ton of sexual partners, then don't give blood or whatever. The, the rule should just be based on, like, how many sexual partners a person have versus a, a gay man or a bisexual man. Absolutely. It really should be a risk-based assessment uh, based on HIV risk. 360,000 men who would donate, who have said that they would donate blood. That's 600,000 pints of blood, which could save nearly a million lives. We have also this really incredible HIV stigma study that was just published by GLAD also, where uh, we found that just 50% of Americans understand, uh, are, are knowledgeable of HIV. And only 46% of Americans have an understanding of what U equals U means. That's undetectable equals untransmittable, where, you know, someone who, like myself, who is living with HIV, is taking a daily pill, is on medication and treatment, can, uh, cannot transmit the virus. Uh, so there's a lot of advancements here. Uh, within this conversation. And it really is about extracting again that stigma and, 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 and instead really driving the science to it. Because the science is here, we have the science. The science has always existed, but there is still this lingering stigma that says gay men are, are dirty and that a, a, a lack of understanding for HIV, right? So I think in addition to these rules, there's a larger conversation to be had about understanding HIV in 2023 and what we can do together as a society to really move all of these standards forward for the community. But Tony, do you think there's a level of fear here from people in the medical profession? Like, I'm imagining if this goes through, if there's a patient at a hospital who gets HIV from, God forbid, a sexually active gay man, like, would that confirm the worst fears here? Yeah, I think that is the 
the the fear, I, I would say it's manufactured fear. The tested capacity we have for HIV uh, right now across all blood that's donated, uh, which by the way, all blood is is screened for HIV along with a host of other uh, infectious diseases and agents. We can detect HIV in, in blood within 10 days today. That's the kind of testing capacity that we have in, in the U.S. today. Gay men, bisexual men, queer people, we are people too. And we want to give and we want to help our communities, right? When you have tragedies like a Pulse nightclub massacre, a Club Q massacre that impacts specifically our community. And then when our community comes together and can't, cannot give blood in those situations, um, it, it, it does something to us that really says that we are still other in society in, in, in 2023. And while these incremental changes are undoing this stigma, there's still a lot that can be done. People just want to be people and to give just like everybody else. Really helpful. All right, that is Tony Morrison from GLAAD. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. The most contentious political race of the year so far was the House Speaker's race. We saw how nasty that got among Republicans. Well, remember, each party also has its own national committee. The Republicans have the RNC, Democrats have the DNC. And these are the folks who decide which candidates will have the party support in future elections. So when you think about who's running for Congress a couple years from now, or even maybe who's running for president, who runs the RNC is a big, big deal. So if you thought the speakership elections were combustible, well, welcome to the battle for RNC chair. ABC's Brittany Shepard is in Dana Point, California, where this RNC election is going down later today. Brittany, why has this become such a big deal? Well, let me set the scene for you, Brad. It's like, let's get ready to rumble times a thousand, like you said. Who actually manages the party is a really big deal. There are lots of folks in the Republican ranks who believe they are the grand poobah. I would say Donald Trump being one of them, but he's not. Mm. The actual chair of the RNC is. They they decide how much money is being fundraised and who it's being given to, who to give the spotlight to, who to route up. reporters to, you know, they are the alpha and the omega of how these campaigns are run. Mm. I want everyone to imagine a boxing ring. And in the boxing ring are these two contenders for uh, RNC chair. That's the big vote happening later on today. And in one quarter, we have RNC chair Ronna McDaniel. I think I've provided a lot of change under my leadership. I'm always open to new ideas and ways to move forward. But She's the current incumbent chair, and she's running for a fourth two-year term. And in the other corner is Harmeet Dillon. She's an RNC member from here in California. Hmm. She is very bombastic. She's an attorney who actually repped President Donald Trump and his battle with the House January 6th commission. And she has no problem taking McDaniel to task. She's on Fox like twice a week. And she's saying we're ready for new leadership. Unless Republicans are addicted to losing and want to continue losing, we must make changes in our leadership. And then... Imagine someone running around the ring, just trying to cause problems and saying, just root for anyone but the incumbent. The, the, the Don King of the RNC. But imagine if Don King sold pillows, um, <laughs> because that person is my fellow CEO, Mike Lindell. Last night I met with over 65 of the 168, and it was so awesome. So positive. I really feel things are looking good. I think they all want change. He's actually the third candidate in this race, and he's waging what I'm calling a bit of a quicksodic bid. 
Well, and so the conventional wisdom had been that Ronna McDaniel, who has like run this organization for a while now, will continue running the organization. Still looks like she's a, a favorite. However, it's not as clear that she'll get all the votes that she thought she would. What is the dig against her right now? And how does this affect like even Ron DeSantis is getting involved at this point. So like, what is the vision here? Dylan is saying we need something else. We need a change. And she's running on three main concerns, basically that they really stepped in it in November, basically that the RNC has waged an inexplicable failure. That's her words in leadership to both a take advantage of mail in and early voting, even if Republicans and Trump say don't do that, you should just vote in person. I feel like when we're talking about getting our voters to vote on Election Day, we're doing AOL dial up from the 1990s and the Democrats are in the fiber optic era. She's saying that the RNC has wasted millions of dollars on consultants who just don't produce results and see that they just can't get good candidates. I think Herschel Walker comes to mind in Georgia and that they need a new person at the top with a new brain and a new vision. Mike Lindell is saying that he's really good at selling pillows and he's a good brander and he's somebody who knows Trump and he cares about election integrity. And, you know, he's waging a war against Dominion, the voting machines, and he believes that he's on the front line of the American people and the grassroots. So that's their pitch, though. I think Ronald McDaniel basically has it in the bag. Republicans have been looking for a head to roll since their poor performance in November. You heard it from DeSantis directly on Thursday. Mm. Huge majorities of the people think the country's going in the wrong direction. That is an environment that's tailor-made to make big gains in the House and the Senate and state house state houses all across the country, and yet that didn't happen. Republicans are losing cycle after cycle after cycle, even in November when they hit everything going for them. What was Biden's approval ratings? Like 30s, you know, low 40s. They had all of the herbs and spices, and they still struck out with, you know, three people on the baseline. I think if I'm mixing my sports metaphors. Like Colonel Sanders' favorite basketball team, it sounds like. Exactly. And the thing is, Republican members have told me this week, it feels like they haven't been able to nail exactly who and which head will roll. I see. So it sounds like people in the party keep kind of kicking themselves, being like, why do we keep getting in bed with these super, super Trumpy candidates? And then what happens when it's time for leadership elections? Where like we put in the person who's really on board with Donald Trump, because that's what it takes to be a member of this party. And yet that makes you wonder then how Trump will actually do when it comes time to like nominate a presidential candidate. Correct. I think something I've been thinking about is like a hot potato of who's the person at fault. And maybe maybe it will inevitably be Trump. But it takes a lot of guts to say that with someone who's singularly running for the Republican presidential nomination and he has lots of money. And guess what? A lot of time because no one else is running against him. Right. So he just has all this media space and oxygen. And the RNC is like, how do we square this? How do we take the reins back from this guy who some believe have co-opted the entire party? Is it too late? And those who are loyal to Trump say, you know what? He's not a bug. He is the feature. So Mm. it's like this cannibalizing is happening from the inside. But there are quite centrist people, RNC members who spoke to me who were like talking over a glass of wine. They said, Brittany, I'm tired. Mm. I just want to do Republican things. I want to talk about the debt limit. You know, I want to get back to the things that make me a conservative and not talking about tweets or truths or whatever. But I think the hard pill for them to swallow is this is just where the party is now. All right, Brittany Shepard sidling up at the bar alongside any RNC member she can find to sort of talk about what's going on behind closed doors. Thank you so much, Brittany. Good luck. Thank you. 
Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, just because there's no shape masks doesn't mean these games are actually fun. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. Who would have guessed it? It might not be fun to be a contestant on Squid Game. When the breakout Korean show drew dazzling reviews, Netflix greenlit a gigantic sprawling game show based on the dark plot in which contestants play childhood games or die trying. They're planning 10 episodes. They'll shoot it in the UK sometime early next year. And of course, win or lose, all players will leave unscathed. Yeah. <laughs> Say that one more time. Well, in this game show version that's in production now, the draw wasn't cold-blooded killing. Rather, it was more the spectacle of the thing. It's said to have the largest cast in game show history with 456 contestants. And just like the scripted show, the first challenge here was red light, green light. According to the UK tabloid The Sun, and now several other outlets like Variety, this game was filmed in a cavernous airplane hangar recently on a very cold, blustery British day. The 400 contestants were given hand warmers and thermal underwear, but multiple participants ended up being tended to by medics. Now, while Netflix acknowledges it was very cold on set, it claims contestants were prepared for that. It vehemently denies some early quotes in which sources described people being stretchered off the set. What's bizarre about this story, though, is that this is a game show based on a TV drama where one of the themes is how messed up game shows are, how our culture, rather than rectifying social ills, dares down-on-their-luck people to go on reality TV and perform their desperation for others. And while Netflix says any claims of serious injury are untrue, the fact that it found this many people willing to compete for $4.56 million, that's 10000 bucks per contestant, makes you wonder if we're all a little more slap-happy than we like to admit. I feel like a TV show sees right through me, and I don't like that. But maybe I would just never audition for this game show because I have these pudgy little fingers, and I know I'd be bad at breaking apart a sugar cookie with an umbrella shape inside of it. Anyway, Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas Baker, Madeline Wood, Vika Aronson, Iru Ekpanobi, Cameron Chertavian, and Tara Gimble. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohen is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, and Liz. Alessi. Special thanks this week to Chris Berry, Nicholas Kerr, and Eric Strauss. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week.